Welcome to Literary Quest, a podcast hosted by us, Vicki and Marissa, where we discuss our favorite and fantasy fiction and hopefully can direct you in your quest to find your next great read. Hello, and welcome to a special episode of Literary Quest. Today, we are interviewing an author. So we are talking to East SM, who is the author of Mercy's Quest, which is set to release on June 21st of this year. Welcome, East. We're so glad that you have joined us. Hello. Thanks for having me. We are so excited to speak with you today. Um, We'll be talking about your book that's set to come out. Really, I mean, it's just about a month away that it'll release. That's pretty exciting. Super exciting. (laughs) Is this, will this be your first book that you've released? It's my first book. It's exciting as much as it's terrifying. I guess I'm fucking over being honest about that, but yes, it's my first one. Oh yeah. Well, that's, that's just fantastic. Um, We're excited for you. It's a big deal. Um, So Why, if you don't mind, can you share a little bit about yourself with our listeners? Sure. Um, My name is East, and I was born in a small town in southeastern Kentucky. And this particular town was very unique because it was full of superstition, as most small Appalachian towns are. And it was also the only city in the United States that's inside a meteor crater. And a lot of people laugh when a lot of artists from our area bring that up, but we all think that it gives us a little extra weirdness (laughs) (laughs) to bring to our art. Um, But basically what I'm about and what I do, I'm an artist of many different mediums. I'm a performance artist. I teach divination classes. I'm a tarot reader. I come from a a family that's a multi-generational divination reading family. And a lot of the things that I focus on in terms of in every, no matter if it's dance or writing or any of the art that I'm expressing myself, it's really about uh, personal empowerment and freedom. So anything that I can do to kind of shake people's traditional kind of viewpoint uh, up through my art, I'm there for it. (laughs) I'm I'm definitely um, pretty passionate about sharing what people like us, uh, people that come from very rural uh, Appalachian communities can offer the world because yeah. we get a lot of stereotypes and, you know, I didn't have as many resources as most folks do. And I think that some of the singers and other authors that have come from my area have just a little bit of a unique turn uh, because of our circumstance and kind of the hardship of where we come from. So. I'm a reflection of, a, of my environment. That's probably the best way I could sum that up. That's amazing. <clears throat> yeah, I saw that in um, some of the information that you were sent to us that you grew up in a meteor crater. That, I mean, I just didn't even know that was the thing. That's, that's super cool. I mean, it's, a, it's weird and, it, and it's definitely a, a cool little fact, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you can pull that out. Like anytime there's one of those awkward icebreaker situations, right. like what do you share something? I hate those, but you've got a cool one. You can be like, yeah. And by the way, this is where I grew up. Like that's pretty fantastic. <clears throat> um, well, thank you for sharing that information about yourself. Um, can you, so we're, we're here to talk about Mercy's Quest, your book. Can you share just a little bit about what the book is about with us or with our oh. authors or authors, with our listeners? Um, the book is basically about a family of bloodman witches that are from the Appalachian Mountains. And the main character, Mercy, realizes, and yes, this is reincarnation, past life level kind of trope. Don't judge me. I know that's very <laughs> controversial. I get that. A lot of people think that's kind of overdone. But um, what I love about Mercy's journey is she she's trying to seek out where she's from, but she's really mo- more focused on future and overlapping timelines. And within this discovery of this, this hero's journey that she's on, she's understanding kind of the, the the main station of humanity good versus evil really isn't the main focus here uh, but in book two we get a little bit more into the evil that exists inside of everybody 
but she's going on a journey to kind of discover who she is. And along the way, she meets all these characters from different timelines in her life and discovers that humanity, Earth, and this experience here isn't quite the story that we've all been sold. And so what I think makes it stand out a little bit differently is when I go to purchase books that I like to read because I read all kinds of different genres, I could honestly say I probably don't go straight for reincarnation <laughs> or past life stuff. And so, for example, if you think of things like Outlander and you have that theme of reincarnation and traveling to the past, but, but the undertone that, that exists in there is, is there's history, there's romance. And the tones of my story are a little bit different. So I mentioned, you know, kind of a little bit in my description and getting to know me, um, divination is a big part of, of who I am as a person. I've been a tarot reader for over 25 years. I come from a family of different types of divination readers. And so, and I, I'm also a teacher. I teach classes in our arts district in uh, the downtown area of Knoxville, Tennessee. And what I, what I have found through that journey of tarot is the fool's journey was very similar to the trope of the hero's journey. It's always about someone being kind of thrown into a circumstance where their faith was challenged. They had to find something about their self. A transformation was happened in some kind of challenge or adversity and they, they kind of are reborn and come to this new version of themselves. And so I know that when we think about reincarnation, you know, we mostly focus on maybe why that person is there, where this story is an overall kind of viewpoint of the metaphor of the fool's journey. We're constantly going through situations where we're having to, to go through a rebirth and, and change into different versions of ourselves. And, and what I really wanted to highlight as a, as a spiritual person, um, you know, that, that can look different depending on who you are with, with a certain person. Mercy, my main character has, for example, her, you know, her romantically kind of interest. She's not really a romantic person, but the, the people that she's interested or coupled with, because she has three love interests, they all cater to different versions of who she is. And, and, and the point is really not so much uh, what she's trying to discover as much as this role that we all play as human beings of what's expected of us, be it from traditional religious kind of backgrounds or from occult, you know, pagan background, it doesn't matter. People still have expectations on how you need to kind of spiritually show up in life. And so what I'm trying to show through this main character is it really doesn't matter if it's reincarnation or you're returning to these different timelines or what's going on. She has to choose to stay present in all these situations and understand that this circumstance is to kind of get her back to a world that wasn't even part of Earth. And so there's also a part of that, um, trying to connect an alternative, an alternate universe into this story as well. So I would say book one is absolutely, you know, the plot is her trying to discover a lot of this stuff, but it's really about setting the world up for what's to come in books two and three. And there's gonna be three spinoff novels from this trilogy as well. So a lot of world building that's happening here. And I hope people are really focused on the character quality and um, the, the experience that she has in the relationships kind of more so than this is a person that's just trying to figure out who she is because there's so much more to it than that. And I think that there's a lot of relatable points for anybody that's going through any type of transformation in their life. What I like about Mercy, your character, um, that seems different from perhaps some of the, so that I feel, you know, uh, we've seen a lot of characters that they have this like big journey ahead of them and they go through this process of challenge and becoming who they are. And a lot of times when we encounter those characters, there's some pushback from the character to maybe not embrace whatever their destiny might be or whatever comes along their path. And what felt different when I was reading this story was there is a lot, and she gets this from her grandmother um, and from her aunt and other characters in her life of just like being present, like you said, but kind of just trusting in whatever the journey is supposed to be. Mm -hmm. And that was absolutely intentional because the way that I kind of see it from like I was mentioning, I don't do a very good job sometimes of, of explaining 
the Appalachian town that I come from, because when you look at the vast kind of range of the Appalachian mountains, and we say Appalachian in the south, I think it's Appalachian. If you're, I was gonna. That was one of my questions. How do you pronounce is it? Appalachia or you can, Appalachia? You can always tell where Will people you are from. <laughs> if, you, if you come to my hometown and you say Appalachian, it probably would not turn out too well. It's a little behind the times, but but the reason that she's that way is because. I truly, when I say, and I, I understand a lot of folks can say, you know, my, my town is unique and there's all these crazy things that make it unique, but really and truthfully, when you look at coal mining towns, and I'm not sure if you have any kind of, you know, knowledge of what that looks like, but there's a lot of hardship and my town, um, you know, was based on uh, hard labor and people, you know, when I was a young kid and I'm, 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 I'm a little older, I'm in my forties, but when I was younger, my grandfather and a generation not too far from me, they were paid in script, not cash. And you had to buy your groceries and all these things from, from the mine that owned your job. And so it set this precedence there of, you know, on, it, it kind of happens to us as humans on a grander scale, like from a government standpoint, but they were mm -hmm. truly kind of controlling the people's experience there. And so when you see a lot of film about Appalachian folk, and there's this melancholy that's kind of present through, present through the people. And you see kind of inherent, an inherent sadness maybe in photographs of people from that area. What I, what I wish people could understand is it's not because we're just in, incredibly sad. We're, we're just tired. <laughs> we work really hard and uh, resources are super limited. You know, I mentioned that it was in a crater and yes, that's funny. But because it's in a crater in the middle of a mountain, you can't, there are people that still don't have internet where I'm from. Yeah. And so I grew up witnessing people in constant adversity and facing hardship, you know, and, and because of that, when you're saturated by that, and it isn't just a section in your town, it isn't just that side of the tracks or whatever, it was my whole community. And so when you're surrounded by people that have to constantly understand the reality of their situation, you know, and, and then have to choose hope and choose perseverance, there's no time for like the characters sometimes that I would see in a hero's journey where people would give that pushback. That wasn't an option where I was from. You had to fake your strength until you believed that. And I wanted to, to write a character that, you know, there are people that have a good sense of self in this world. There are people that because of the environment that they grew up with automatically have that confidence and courage to say, you know what, I'm here for it. I'm going to show up for it and let this happen to me. And I think if we continue writing characters that kind of beef up the victimhood or whatever, or, or the, the tantrum, you know, and I'm not saying that because I'm, listen, I resist a lot of things, in my life, <laughs> but I want to start writing characters that kind of set that precedent for other folks because I'm a huge believer in um, the hero's journey in terms of literature. If you think about Joseph Campbell, who wrote uh, Power of Myth, and he, you know, talks a lot about the importance of myth and its influence on us as a society and how as writers, we need to be responsible and, and write the characters that kind of reflect the change. And he was, he was saying this in the seventies, you know, and this is something that we need to kind of understand as authors right now. So I wanted to write her with a, a level of strength that she wasn't, have, she wasn't having to find her strength. She was really just having to str struggle with her mental kind of wonderment with it all. She would show up, but she would still have that kind of, why is this happening? What's going on? But she, she stayed in a space of action. And I, I feel like personally with, you know, as, as a person that reads tarot for folks and, and does lean really heavy in kind of, you know, the occult and spiritual community, there's not enough people being to told that you can have this big task and you can you not know where you're from, or you can be on this grand journey and still have a sense of strength and confidence about you. And you can still, you know, uh, be your own cheerleader and, and you, you're capable of that. And if you're staying in a space of action and, and, you're, and you're not sitting and just wondering why, 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 you're meeting the work where it's trying to meet you. And I wanted my characters to kind of be those people that just show up and, and they're ready to kind of meet the experience of life where it's at. Mm -hmm. I really like that. Um, <clears throat> I think that, I mean, there are probably some other 
um, oh, what is the word ideologies that, that have an emphasis on that? I'm just thinking like from a mindful, from a mindfulness standpoint, the emphasis there a lot of times is just to be present, um, to embrace the moment for where it is and recognize that every situation lacks permanence. And so, um, just kind of start it's a, there's actually a, a really good book that I like, um, by Pima Chodron. It's called start where you are, right? So mm -hmm. meeting yourself where you're at. Yes. Um, I love that emphasis in your character. It's 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 a nice change. Like I love this. I mean, I love the struggle. Well, I knew if I was going to start, start the book off with killing her because I'm not a huge fan of that either. I mean, I, I did struggle with that just a little bit because we always see women dying for their reaper. <laughs> <laughs> but my thought with that is if you think about it metaphorically, we're still in a pretty deep struggle, you know? And so I'm not going, I'm not going to, I'm not going to look down on that just because that's something that's common. And I don't think I paint that picture in a way where it's setting us back in any capacity. Yeah. And if anything, it's just highlighting that this woman who was in her sense of power, it couldn't be handled by a man <laughs> who mm -hmm. was kind of reflecting. And, and, and that seems to be a forever issue. So yes. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. Um, so as an occultist and a diviner, how do you feel like your experience with those things was influenced by your upbringing or the, the, uh, I don't, now I don't know how to say Appalachian. I'm, I don't want to. You say it however you're comfortable. Okay. <laughs> So do you, have you ever, have you ever watched Dr. Who? Yes. Okay. So there's a place it's called Appalachia and I really struggle with not the, uh, the 11th doctor went there with Amy and Rory and that's where Amy got stuck because, and, and she aged a whole lot. And so I look at this word and I want to say Appalachia so bad and that's not even a thing, but okay. So how do you <laughs> feel like, um, as a, as an occultist and a diviner, how do you feel like the Appalachian influence has our upbringing has influenced your practice of those things? It's definitely different because when I relocated, I moved about an hour south outside of Kentucky because of the very things that I've mentioned, uh, just a lack of opportunity. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I can still drive home and, and see my family. But what I realized when I moved to, to Knoxville, which is where I'm at right now, my experience as an occultist and a diviner did not mirror <laughs> anyone else that was having that experience here. And what I realized that mountain folk that come from their own kind of family, superstitious, maybe designer, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. it's their designer brand of paganism or whatever. Um, I realized that my experience throughout that was different. And so a lot of people in the community, um, you know, would follow maybe a stricter kind of, of sense of, of rules, you know, like with Wicca or traditions or things like that. I'm not really about that. That's, that's not the kind of person that I am. And so how it influenced my writing and how it influenced me as a diviner is, I think, again, you know, not to keep bringing up a, a point, but when you, when you grow up in a certain type of circumstance where there's not a lot of opportunity. You, you learn how to really meet anybody where they are. And so when I, I sat in a space of divination, I've read for doctors, I've read for people that were homeless. And it, it, I think coming from where I come from allowed that energy to meet a little bit more organically with those people. And there was a better exchange and, and, and being able to provide that resource of divining or tarot for that person. And I didn't have preconceived notions of, you know, well, you have to use this sage stick to do this and face this direction. You know, um, we, you know, the people that taught me how to read didn't have formal education. So um, I come, I come from it, I come from a place of feeling and emotion with my spiritualism and, and divining more than I do academically or intellectually, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And I think that that makes the experience a little bit more unique. Um, you were talking about being present and just kind of surrendering to an experience. I, I, I'm all about that, but I'm also all about honoring the shadow moments of life. And I feel like, you know, in the spiritual communities, I kind of got involved in outside of my mountain and my family, people were very light focused. 
And uh, that's great. I think it's great to be positive and, and have a positive attitude. But, you know, the monster that lives with, within all of us is the greatest teacher we can have. Mm-hmm. And if we were sitting in a space where we were constantly trying to do, quote unquote, shadow work to get rid of that, then, then where are we sitting, you know? And so I found that a lot of people that came from a more structured religious, be it traditional, non-traditional, there wasn't a lot of grace to sit with the ugliest parts of yourself mm-hmm. and, and see those spaces as sacred. And I, I'm hoping that that's the little bit of uniquity that kind of shows through of my past life reincarnation telling that's not, mm-hmm. that makes it maybe not so redundant, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a whole field of psychology devoted to just being positive or so it's called positive psychology, right? Um, but I, I think it's important that, that to emphasize that we all have bits of lightness and darkness in us. And that doesn't make a person like that's not inherently bad, right? There's a balance in like right. everything. And life always meets us with the energy that we're putting out. And so if you're putting out like tons of toxicity and negativity, then yes, there you're going to probably live in that vibration and make choices from that vibration. And who knows how deep that can go. And I love the fluidity of that because I'm not my best self every day. Mm-hmm. And I learned my biggest lessons when I'm probably not in the best space. And so I really thought that, you know, and this is just my experience in this world. And I understand it's not reflective of every spiritual community, but what I was running into was a lot of that toxic kind of positivity. And, and I want to, you know, because I'm from where I'm from and there's so much, you know, kind of ugliness in the, in the reality of the economy there and, and whatever, even though it's a beautiful place to live, mm-hmm. when people choose to accept the reality of their circumstance, they're already empowered to become better versions of themselves. And, and, and the acceptance isn't getting rid of it. And so that's really important to me um, to just keep that. And I think that that's a reflection and maybe it's a reflection of just true salt of the earth people all over the world. But I really believe a lot of the folks where I've come from have that same kind of approach where we don't really care like what books are telling us to do, we're just trying to show up and, and feel our way with our heart and, and be forgiving of the moments that we're not, you know, great people and, and celebrate the moments that we are and, and just, you know, be human. And, and, and I, the human experience to me is more important, you know, than anything. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So has, how has like the divination or your other practices, how did they play a role in your writing? So I'm actually teaching, I teach workshops based on divination. Um, when I, I've been, like I said, I've been reading uh, bones and tea leaves and tarot cards my whole life. And when I got a little bit older, probably in my thirties, I started playing around with, if I were to, to lay a card out in front of you, two cards, and let's say those two cards together meant that you needed rest and you needed rest because you were overworked. And that's what those card meanings were. Instead of me looking at you and giving you a very dry kind of, well, it looks like, you know, you're working a lot. (laughs) I would take that feedback and make up a fictitious kind of paragraph. And, and, and for example, I would say a flower came to life and, and, helped the other flowers create a garden or, or something silly. It wasn't any, anything that I would put off because I'm doing this on the fly with people one-on-one, not having time to edit or anything. It's very stream of conscious. And what I realized is I started using that as a resource to write my poetry and, and, and eventually start this book. And, you know, tarot is, is a resource just like anything else. You can, you can sit with a character when you're doing character development And let's say I have had this dream, right? And I've got the framework and I know pretty much the gist of the story and where it's going. The dream didn't give me every single detail. And so if I know that this character um, has this certain kind of tone to her, I can can do a tarot spread or some kind of just ask questions like, you know, uh, is this person more heart-centered or are they more intellectual? And if I pull a sword card, then I know that this character needs to be more Uh, non-emotional and so it's a beautiful way to be creative you know to just kind of dig deeper into the details of your story and I'm actually teaching a workshop in Atlanta this summer July the 17th at um, Mystic South Conference and it's going to be this one hour workshop nothing super intense 
that I just have, you know, a template where I've set up a little short story for them and I'm going to kind of teach them that method. We'll guide them through a story that'll be complementary to, to a certain theme. And then I'm going to collect all of those stories from that conference and other workshops that I've done and put a little anthology together and sell it online for probably like five bucks or something and give all the proceeds to um, a harvest food bank in my hometown because that poverty is one of the biggest um, issues where I'm from. And so I'm super excited to be able to use that and, and be able to give back in that way. But I, but I use tarot all the time if I'm trying to think about, even I'm a dancer, I'm a performance artist, I'm an aerialist, I teach um, aerial hoop and pole dancing in Knoxville as well. And I'm, I'm, I'm an entertainer. We do a lot oh of pole plays, like we're doing the Wizard of Oz soon and stuff like that. So if I'm, trying, if I'm trying to develop a character for, for, a, for a show that I'm doing, then I'll also use my cards. Like what emotion do I need to pull out? And I trust that the energy of that information, you know, it's never let me down in 20 years. So it works really well for me. <laughs> That's amazing. I didn't know that pole plays were a thing. First of all, that is super cool. The Wizard <laughs> of Oz. Oh my gosh. But it's so great that you can use that to give back to your community too. Right. So it's, it's really interesting when I share this story because I always wonder if I should filter because I live a very spiritual experience out loud and I try to not be super oppressive towards other folks that I know may not have the same view, but I, ha I experience prophetic dreams sometimes as well. So my dreams are really intense and serious. And I had this crazy dream one night uh, that this man kind of came to me <laughs> and he was, a, he was pretending like he was asleep in this chair and there were all these people around and I was the only person that can see him. I know this is strange. And he took my hand and he said, we're going to burn houses down. No, that sounds really weird. <laughs> so we, we left these people. They still couldn't really see this guy. And we start burning these houses down. And he starts telling me this story. And the story was kind of the second half of my book. I'll get back to the first part in just a second. And then we ended up at the, at the end of this dream when he, when he kind of told me all this stuff at a tree in my front yard in my in my house and and then I woke up and I was like really inspired and I know that's you know and then I continued having dreams where this person would show up and no one could see him and he would just tell me things as I was writing the book so the weird part is the book when the book was finished I had ordered a new set of tarot cards because I have a million and I needed a million and one and they were delivered during a storm. And so what happened, um, our mailbox was kind of blown apart by a falling tree. <laughs> and we found the tarot cards with three cards pulled out on my, in my yard in front of a tree that had been struck by lightning. And it was the tree that was in my dream where I had, you know, spoke with this person, mm -hmm. <laughs> I guess. And the tarot cards are the tarot cards. That's one of the readings in the book. And that oh. was not obviously planned. And so that seemed incredibly mystical and synchronistic for mm -hmm. me. And I just, you know, and as far as like the beginning of the book, um, my great grandmother had a very interesting, she was a practitioner of a lot of mountain occult things. Um, and she kept a black box on her mantle. And so when we were kids, you know, she would say, you can't touch that. There's magic totems in that, you know, leave it alone. And we would make up all of these stories about that box. And so if you've read the book, mm -hmm. that kind of opens the story. Mm -hmm. So that actually came from my real grandmother in the house. And so that linked up very nicely with this journey, this quest that came through this dream. And then it all just started pouring out of me kind of effortlessly. Um, and that's, that's how the book came to be. So I was wondering, um, out of all the characters, do you have your own favorite character in the book? I do, yes. Okay. <laughs> um, my favorite character is definitely Vincent. Okay. Um, he is the... He's 
I don't really want to give too much away of his story because uh, it's hard when you're writing all this stuff in this book that, that's current, that's coming out. I've not visited that in a really long time and I'm, I'm very deep in, in book two, but he has a unique story and I love the fact that he, oh gosh, I'm trying to not give too many spoilers away from book two. Let me think about this. <laughs> He's an artist and I love that about him. But I love that when you find out really who he is and where he's from, he is capable, uh, he's like a mercenary. He's capable of, of all kinds of incredibly dark things, but he stays in this space of um, certainty, doing it for kind of the cause of humanity and that, and that kind of thing. And I, I'm a sucker for people that um, have that, you know, dangerous kind of murderous artist vibe going on. <laughs> There's something about it. And I would say he's going to be the person that you kind of don't see coming as the series develops. Um, He's very charismatic and and beautifully sold. And I named him after Vincent Van Gogh because I'm ridiculous like that. (laughs) (laughs) Also the Doctor Who episode, speaking of. Oh my gosh, I cry every time. Every single time. But there was this beauty, you know, since you're, you know, obviously familiar with, you know, Vincent they're they're kind of the same people there's a brokenness that that's yeah. very kind of in him but he still chooses to to express and kind of pursue whatever it is his his purpose is and I felt like Van Gogh was very much the same way mm-hmm. you know didn't really kind of understand why he was the way he was and his circumstances were what what they were but all this beauty just kind of poured out of him and 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 the melancholy of not being really appreciated in his living life and mm-hmm. and that is so touching to me because you know, it just makes us all, I hope, reflect as humans that it's not really about that recognition. It's just about, once again, the quest, the process, mm-hmm. the journey. Yes. So he's my favorite. My little Vincent copy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I have a question about the lore in this book. So some of this I'm familiar, like the Morgan, familiar with that, at least for Morningstar, some familiarity there. Some of this was completely new to me. Can you explain like what lore you drew from in writing this story? Sure. Um, there's, there's a mix. I'm, I'm, I'm really into hermetics, um, alchemy, and have been probably for 20 years. I'm going to say I'm into it, but I'm not definitely, you know, um, an expert on it. And one of the things that was really troubling for me as, as a young spiritualist growing up and studying all these different pathways, especially like in hermetics and alchemy, was the lack of feminine presence there. And um, so if you kind of, if you look at, for example, Morningstar, some people have a theory that he's Apollo, right? Mm-hmm. Because all these stories kind of are similar depending on which angle, which lens you're viewing it through. And so my morning star has a little bit of the Christian kind of idea of who of who he was to God. Mm. Um, it has that Apollonian kind of vibe. I will tell you, uh, there's a bland, a fusion of all kinds of different things in there. Um, it's, but the biggest thing would be from the Carpathian region, the, the Dacian, the Dacian kind of folklore. That's pretty heavy all throughout. Mm-hmm. And, and the reason that I resourced that, because you can look kind of at Pythagoras and his journey when he leaves Greece, there's a crossover that kind of happens uh, in that region. And we see a lot of these stories being very similar. And so the Apollonian war wolves is very much um, something that's reflective of the keepers of the Apollonian temple that you can find in, in different, different spaces. Also, you can think about if you've ever researched Solomon, uh, or I'm sorry, not Solomon, but the devil supposedly has had a, the Scholomance school in the Carpathian Mountains. It's referenced in Dracula. It's referenced in all kinds of, of uh, vampire and werewolf lore from Central and Eastern Europe. I, that is kind of, well, that's a major influence on what you see in the Carpathian component of the book. And there's so many different um, magic systems that's not necessarily the origin of Romania or that area that still kind of somehow make their way into that space. So there's a point in the book where Victor 
Uh, she has this vision where he has a bear head on. That was very intentional, uh, an intentional nod to the Dacian community. So you're seeing a lot of hermetics here. You're seeing Hellenistic themes here. You're seeing Christianity here. You're seeing all kinds of stuff because I didn't want to put emphasis on any one thing because that's not important to me. I love the archetypal identification of what these different characters pull from, from how they're seen in, in different spaces. And so, I, you know, some of the people that are pretty deep in a cult, it's, it, that, that's been my best moments of when those folks have read the book and they're like, mm-hmm. I see what you did there with this because there's a lot of little Easter eggs that you don't really have to know. But if you are in that world, um, there's some there's some things that are kind of hidden throughout that you're like okay I see that you know a Pythagorean brotherhood that's that's a you know you you see that a lot in the book as well mm-hmm. and you can research that with Hermes Trismegistus and all that stuff and kind of see where that come from you know because a lot of people I'm not huge into conspiracy uh, I'm a dabbler because <laughs> I'm just a creative person and it just fascinates me sometimes but I love that a lot of people can theorize that um, some of those folks maybe have a hold on a lot of the major things in the world. And so it's interesting to me that there's extremism and all of that. You know, you can see it in, in Hermetics, you can see it in Christianity, you can see it in Satanism, you can see it in all kinds of places. So I intentionally pulled from lots of layers of different things because I didn't want people to be like, this is a retelling of the, of the, uh, Hellenistic blah 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 or whatever Mm -hmm. and I will give you a spoiler I will tell you Morningstar Lucifer and where that angle is going uh do I want to say this yes I do uh do I want to yes (laughs) (laughs) please do (laughs) she she knew him before he was who he was Mm. and she actually is someone that you'll find out he may or may not have prayed to at some point. And you mentioned the Morrigan, and we're talking about the Morrigan lore. One of the things I found super fascinating about, um, was it the Odyssey? Um, when they talk about the three fates mm-hmm. and they, they refer to them as the three fates of more. If you look at the Morrigan, just as she is, she doesn't have a lot of the historical stuff that you would maybe... I don't know, Dionysus or someone like that would have. She, she kind of has a hard stop with Celtic and um, mm-hmm. in that community. I love though that there are versions of her that are very similar in all kinds of spaces. I love that there's a, there's a feminine representation of some goddess that's usually attached to a bird that represents past, present and future or fates or, or some kind of triple sacredness to some degree, just like the Moor did in, 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 the, uh, in the journey. Uh, was it the Odyssey? I think I'm right on that. <laughs> I'm going to be really embarrassed if I'm wrong. Um, but you, I, I hope to kind of throw a nod to that as well. You, you kind of think that she's the Morrigan, and yes, she might be what society's version is of that, but she's even older, right? Mm. Interesting. And their relationship, that I'll just tell you, that's one of the spinoff books that'll come after the series. You'll kind of understand him making a deal to get into the story that maybe we might know is his story. And then you'll see my reimagining of where I think he really comes from and what his true purpose is. So that's been a hard one, I think, for some folks to kind of, if they're traditional, not book readers, because we all read all kinds of stuff and we're open to a lot of things. Yep. But, uh, <laughs> there are, you know, some traditional folks in my community that have had the privilege to kind of maybe see this before it came out. A lot of people are really like, wow, the devil is uh voice of reason here and it's just it's metaphoric in ways that you can't even like understand until you get a little deeper into the series that's super cool how interesting Ooh, i like it um in the story your character does a little bit a, a little bit like a, f- a physical and metaphysical maybe traveling um would we call it that? Is that sure. Yeah, yeah, sure. Okay, yeah. So she she travels. Just through portals. Um, yeah, that. <laughs> I mean, that that counts. Yes. So Mercy does some traveling. Were any of your travels like influential in your storytelling in this book or in the books that follow? Oh, absolutely. I've traveled a whole lot. You know, with jobs that I've had in my life, I've been pretty fortunate, and 
Um, I have some friends that live in Hungary and different places in the world. So I had to put Budapest in the book because it's a place that I love and I've visited and I've actually ran under the streets of Budapest and, you know, stood in the the little cell that held the, the original Vlad, the impaler, when they imprisoned him in Hungary. And and that definitely made its moment. There's a there's a there's a moment where they stop at a bakery to get a pastry. And this, and anybody that is from this area, not that anybody from Hungary will read my book, but let's hope, let's hope. <laughs> yes, we can get that out there. Yes. People, people would know that. I think that any place that I have referenced, whether it's Rosa, Rosarita, Mexico, or, or whatever's in my book, I have been there. And so I wanted to share that authentically. And I, if I were being really transparent with you right now, and this is my honest truth, I'm not confident enough to write too far out of my own experience at this mm-hmm. point in my journey. So, but yeah, Budapest was a great one. Finland uh, is another place that I spent time. I actually, um, one of our instructors in our poll studio is on Team USA, and we went to the world poll competition, which is really hard for Americans to kind of wrap nice. because in Europe, it's on the uh, it's on the track to become an Olympic sport. And so when we're in Europe, these are all people that are gymnasts that compete in other Olympic sports. And uh, so it's a very kind of different experience. Wow. Um, and I help assistant coach one of our um, competitors that, um, but anyway, you know, that experience, you know, when I go on these trips, it's so funny, you know, I have to go and run off uh, when we were in Finland competing I got a cabin in the middle of a Finnish berry forest in the middle of nowhere and was like, okay, I'm going to go lock myself away for a long time and just try to write some of this book. Yeah. So I really believe because I'm an energy person, because I'm into kind of that spiritual exchange of how we show up in the world, that the same way that that can happen with folks, with other people that we meet, I think places that we're not conditioned to can also give us that energy and that gift. And, and I tell you, if you have, I don't know if you've been to Finland, but highly recommend it. It's pretty great. It's beautiful. So the artwork, there is artwork featured within this book and obviously on the cover, like it's gorgeous. Can you tell us about this artwork? And I know that there's a special author or not author illustrator too. Please talk about the artwork for this book. Sure. So again, uh, I know I've mentioned this a thousand times, but as a tarot reader, there is um, lots of beautiful decks that you can get from all over the world. And I like to collect all these beautiful little things. I had a friend, it was actually a friend of my publisher, and she said, hey, East has this book. And and she was one of my beta readers. And she was like, is she going to do illustrations? And the publisher was like, well, we haven't really thought that far into it and she said I think she should try to do that and I would recommend using this person I know she's a fan of his tarot decks and so he uh, his name is Fabio Lestrani and he created the uh, Goetia tarot uh, not sun tarot gosh Santa Muerta tarot and oracle and he is um, an artist with um, oh I can't think of the name of the publishing company but they're like Llewellyn here they're like the Italian version of Llewellyn in Europe. And so she introduces us and I'm like, okay, this guy's really cool. So we start talking and then I figure out he's an illustrator for Marvel Comics. And he's also an illustrator for Heavy Metal Comics. And he also has his own comic book out. And I love graphic novels too. So I'm, I know that that was a little bit maybe of a, a risk taking it in that area. But because of who he was or is, and all that encompasses and who I am, it just seemed more energetically like a great fit for us to work together. And then we started, you know, this relationship and he is so seasoned in this business. He, he really taught me a whole lot about how to consider pictures for, for your story and what not to do. You know, when I had initially sent him these images, they were probably so elaborate, you would need the whole side of a building to put them together. And he was like, that's not how this works. You know, you need a focal point. And so that whole experience, not, not only am I super grateful to have someone that amazing contribute his work when he's already, you know, invested in his own path and doing a lot. It was, I was more grateful for uh, the opportunity to grow with that relationship and just learn a lot, of, you know, cause I have been an artist for 20 years, but this is new to me. 
Now, mm -hmm. I know the other industries that I, I'm kind of intertwined with, but not this one. And I can tell you, I was incredibly surprised by what I didn't know <laughs> when I stepped into this, you know. Yeah. What are some of your favorite authors um, that have inspired you or what's your comfort read? Oh my gosh, that's two different lanes. So let me just. <laughs> <laughs> I got ahead of myself. <laughs> the inspiration. Um, absolutely. Hands down. I know this probably sounds like an easy thing to throw out, but again, I was, I was born in 79. So I'm, I'm in my mid forties. I discovered Anne Rice when I was 11 years old and I read interview with a vampire before that ever even came out in the movie. And it, that was a huge moment for me. I know that sounds kind of crazy, but I felt like such a grown up because that was the first time I'd read the book, the adult book before I saw mm -hmm. the movie. And I thought that was such a big, you know, um, I loved how overly descriptive she was. And I know not everyone's a fan of that, but I'm a poet first. And so I love lots of beautiful language and I love lots of beautiful descriptions. And so she painted her scene so well, that was super inspirational for me. How she reacted to fans maybe recreating her art, maybe not a huge fan of that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but she was definitely my biggest inspiration in terms of, of genre and kind of pushing me into that direction. My comfort read, let me just go ahead and let you know, I've just blown through the entire Zodiac Academy in two months, and I'm halfway through on the Ruthless Boys, <laughs> and that is not what I write. Um, I feel like so terrible because I love the books. I don't know why I feel like I have to like defend that I'm, I'm reading uh, romance because- You don't. I, I don't, right? Oh, yeah. But it's funny because some folks, when they know you and what you write, and then they hear what you read, and they're like, what? <laughs> That's like two different lanes. But I, I love those books. I've really, it's been a long time since I've thrown myself into quick speed reading stuff. And I don't know if that's just the perfect combination of I'm writing a lot right now and it, the vibe that it's giving me is very relaxing and easy mm -hmm. for me to read. Mm -hmm. Also um, really into, um, I'm reading this new book called Hotel, it's not new, but it's Hotel Magnifique. It's a YA novel and I don't read a lot of YA. So I'm trying that out right now. Mm -hmm. um, but I read, I, I don't know, I'll read just about anything. If it's occult related or witchy, I love it. If it's got vampires in it, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have much of a reach outside of that and fairy porn and stuff like that. Girl, we love that fairy porn. <laughs> I'm, I'm here for it all day. Listen, oh. when I'm Ryder Dragonus in that book, I was like, what is happening? <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah. You don't ever have to justify that stuff on our show. We, um, <laughs> We love that. And what's been the most challenging part of writing the book? Oh gosh, imposter syndrome. I mean, I feel like that's what everybody <laughs> yeah. was. I mean, I hope, yeah. uh, I don't know. I hope I'm just not alone in that. Um, the hardest part was, you know, you, yeah, sure. It came through easily, but then you always question it and you have to go through this. But, and I still do that. I still do that. I still go back and, and I've already evolved even a little as a writer since I wrote that book. So that constant kind of ebb and flow of just being okay and accepting what you did for what it is and, and being willing to do something bigger and better every time post that project. That for me as somebody that struggles with ADD and perfectionism and all kinds of stuff, it was a mental kind of whip back and forth. And, and that has been very challenging for me because not to use like cliche terms, but I feel like I've done the work, <laughs> you know, since I'm, not that I'm finished doing the work, but I, I have put a lot of work into to working on how I kind of receive and show up in the world. And, and I know this is going to sound very obvious, you know, but, but sometimes when life puts us in a different circumstance, we feel like we're starting all over again in certain ways. Mm. And just kind of going back and forth and having to choose confidence more than I'm used to uh, was a little bit of a heartbreak sometimes because um, I worked really hard to love myself and be proud of how I show, show up, especially as a plus size dancer that gets on stage with very uh, traditional bodied folk. And um, people are very honest, you know, with how they feel about that sometimes. And so doing that for 20 years really built my confidence up because things like that don't really affect me anymore. Well, I kind of had to start over again with acceptance and how I show up in the world and what matters to me and why do I care 
And why do I want people to love things? And is it okay to be that way? And so that's been the most difficult part. Writing the story, that's okay. I'm an imaginative person. I've been an artist. I love to create. I've got a thousand stories in my head. I'd love to just be able to put out. But having the courage and also uh, just another different note, I'm a stream of conscious writer that didn't go very far with formal education in school because that structure doesn't work well for me. Mm -hmm. My editors work really hard um, with kind of helping me understand just grammatical structure and that kind of stuff. And so I went through this whole process of uh, going into writer's groups and that was traumatizing for me. I will just tell you, uh, I never had a good experience with that and I'm not gonna limit myself and say that I can't have a good experience. I'm sure I'll find the right fit someday, but um, I come from this very raw and honest with not a lot of formal background. And I felt like those were the things that mattered in those groups. Um, And so I had to constantly just tell myself, yeah, you're not a reflection of the people that are writing books right now. You have the people that have written 30 books and they're super invested in their path. And then you have the people that want to know what college you graduated from and how, how many things you have published and, and not in the way of general curiosity. It's kind of in that interview capacity of like, are you a good fit? Or are are you, have you earned the right to kind of be an author? And so I feel like I'm not a traditional author comparatively to most folks and just kind of having to be the new kid in school, I guess, and try to find my way through and, and find the right friends and find the right community and the right people to support me in, in my publishing company even. Um, it's interesting to have to kind of, you know, look at that so intently, you know, in my 40s later in life. And again, I'm not saying that I'm not above learning things and growing, but I almost felt like I was starting over emotionally in certain ways. Well, we appreciate you. And your time. We are just very grateful to you for taking the time to speak with us. Um, and I'm very excited for you in the release of your first book and the books to come. Um, yes, six books in total, right? That's what you were planning? Yes. That's amazing. Yeah. Plus all the other stuff. Or psychotic. Yeah. It's well, <laughs> I mean, perspective, right? Yeah, but thank you all so much. I'm grateful too. All righty. Well, that wraps up our conversation with East SM. You can look for her first book, Mercy's Quest, to be released on June 21st of this year, Summer Solstice. Um, thank you for listening. Then go check out this book. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to Literary Quest. We hope you enjoyed our episode. If you'd like to follow us on social media, we can be found at Literary Quest Podcast on Instagram or Facebook. You're also welcome to share your thoughts and ideas with us via email at literaryquestpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again.